You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. This ecto-containment system that Spengler and I have in mind is going to require a load of bread to capitalize. Where are we going to get the money? I don't know. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Ghostbusters Retrospective Series. I'm just so glad you came back. <laughs> Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning soft voice Logan as they prove that no series is too big and no drink is too big for these aftertaste hosts. That's great! Actual physical contact! Why is Logan as grumpy on this series? as Bill Murray is on these sets. Give me angry. Will you, will you give me angry if you've had a bad day? You're cranky. What is the complicated tale behind the bringing of this cursed podcast series to life? You know, my dad says you guys are full of crap. And what are we expecting in the new Jason Reitman entry, Ghostbusters Afterlife? Does anybody speak English here? Uh, the answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Sorry, Beckman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. Ghostbusters, released June 8th, 1984. Budget was $30 million. Box office, an astounding $295.2 million. And this is directed by Ivan Reitman. Who are you guys going to call? Well, it's going to be the aftertaste, folks, to do Ghostbusters, a series that... I am highly convinced until we get these things posted is fucking cursed. I'll explain that here in a little bit. But first, I am joined by the one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, fresh off the Fast and Furious shows. How you doing, kind sir? I am more than willing to give the wheel back over to you. You're going to be driving the ship for this one. I got my Fast and Furious fix. And I'll be spending the rest of these recordings trying to figure out of the three of us. Who would be who? Who's the Venkman? Who's the Ray? Who's the Egon? Well, I have a pretty good idea of who everyone is, but let's get to our third person first. Gentlemen who we recorded a lot of shows with last year that haven't made the air yet. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But we're so happy to welcome him back, the one and only Logan James. Back to the Aftertaste Airways. How you doing, kind sir? Good. How are you guys this evening? I guess we are in. We are fantastic. We've had a pretty big year so far. We've gone through M. Night. We've gone through mm -hmm. Fast and Furious. We've argued. We've thrown we down shows together. Yeah. We did Toy Story. We've had a huge year. On we did Ghostbusters, but... <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I've been circling the drain. Let's go ahead and get to that right now. So for people out there who want to know, 
We did these shows already. Go back to 2020, the craziest year of all time for not just us, but everybody. And in the course of time, Matt and I decided, like we've been doing this year so far, you know, we're going to record two, three shows a week. And we had Logan for a set of months. All three of us, we were all shut down. Our jobs were shut down. So we decided, okay, we're going to do two sets of shows. One set of shows... Well, I'm not going to talk about that set of shows because who knows what those will ever see the light of day. But one of those shows we decided to do was Ghostbusters. And in the time between the time we recorded those shows and we're recording now, computers got changed over and some files got lost. So here we are to re-record these. But you know what? I think... We have a lot to chew on here because I almost forget those shows. I don't remember what the scores were. I hadn't listened to them since we recorded them. I hadn't started editing them yet. So here we are. And lo and behold, the movie that was supposed to be released last year is being released this year. At least that's what's supposed to happen. Is there going to be like a petition uh, like on Twitter for a release, the original Ghostbusters recordings, like in the vein <laughs> of Snyder, with Snyder Cut? I got news for you, sir. I don't think those will ever be see the light of day <laughs> just because, well... They got erased. That's what Warner Brothers um, said, is, but then all of a sudden we got a four-hour movie. Yeah, that's true. HBO Max. That's true. Well, Warner Brothers ain't giving us $70 million <laughs> to work on those. <laughs> you're not kidding. You know, I want to go to Logan first. Logan, you're making the return to the aftertaste. You know, you have made kind of a bid for these shows a number of years before we decided to do them. When we did the fantasy shows, you had mentioned that Ghostbusters was a big part of your life. Where do you rank Ghostbusters? Um, I mean, Ghostbusters was along the lines of, you know, other films that I'd watched growing up in my childhood. It was it was a pretty big deal. 1984 was a year after I was born, so obviously it wasn't a theatrical, you know, watch for me. Um, it was one that I saw on uh, a VHS tape that was not a Ghostbusters VHS tape, but basically one that I, you know, my dad recorded off the VCR off HBO, and then, you know, my, my brother and I would watch until the tape wore out and whatever. But Ghostbusters was a big part of my childhood. The movie, obviously, but I was bigger into the cartoon that aired around a couple years later. All the Ghostbusters toys, um, had a Ghostbusters proton pack trap, um, you know, I, I dressed up as a Ghostbuster for Halloween. So it was a nice. pretty big deal for me growing up. But as far as the movie is concerned, you know, I revisited every Halloween traditionally. You know, when High C uh, Ecto Cooler came back, I was first to jump at the chance, and then I had one that was sitting on the shelf for way too long, and I tried it, and it still tasted fine. And I was like, well, that just proves how the shelf life of these things can be. But, uh, you know, the Ecto-1, I think, is one of the most... It's number two as far as my movie cars. The DeLorean will always come first. But, you know, definitely one that I revisit every year, and, uh, you know, it... I'm not trying to show my hand too early, but, you know, it holds a lot not nostalgic purposes for me growing up. So, uh, but we'll get into the thick of that later on when we discuss the movie in full. But, you know, it's a big part of my uh, core cinematic watching, if you will. And now for the gentleman who this movie came out five years before he was born. Uh, so I have a feeling I... where he's going to land on this. The one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, sir, where is Ghostbusters in your pantheon? Nine years before my existence. Just remember, I was born in 93. Cheat, you think we've been working together so long you remember that I'm <laughs> your brother. Unfortunately, I have to put Ghostbusters in the same category as other metros we've done, like Gremlins and 80s Fantasy, where the fact that I was not around and none of those properties were really in vogue when I was growing up kind of kept me on the sidelines for a while. I probably would have seen Ghostbusters probably before I was 10 in that, like, 7 to 10 range where 
you know, I was I was old enough to not be scared by it, but not old enough to understand all the innuendos and things of that nature. The only thing I distinctly remember was I had the DVD for Easter one year. This was back when the menus were interactive on the DVD. Mm-hmm. It was like when you had it, a play movie scene selection, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was literally moving around, and it was like a 3D graphic that you could watch. Which was pretty cool. Uh, I kind of wish they'd do that now, but I've never seen the cartoon. I wouldn't classify myself as an Uber fan or an Ecto fan, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it it's one of those things that I, I get it. I know it's a staple of many people's childhood, but I'm coming at this from the angle of, you know, it's past my generation a little bit, and I'm looking at it from a more modern perspective because I don't watch this movie with regularity. Not saying to showing hand towards the movie, but it's just, you know, the fact of life of where I'm at currently. Wow. When the highlight of the movie for you is the DVD menu. Boy, oh boy. We have some convincing to do here, Logan. <laughs> 1984. Big, big year for me. Between this, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins. I almost lived at the theater with my parents. We would go a lot. I did see this with my parents in theaters. Right after watching the first scene of Twilight Zone, the movie, which has Dan Aykroyd in it and pretty much scarred me for a long time. My dad showed me that scene right before we went to this movie. So (laughs) my dad had a pretty funny sense of humor. But I came out of that theater. I just lived with this movie. I loved it. I had the Ecto gun. I made my room into a Ghostbusters headquarters for a while. I took the soundtrack album, put it up on my door because they had the Ghostbusters symbol on it. I lived this movie for a while. I really enjoyed it. Of course, five years went by, and we'll talk about the sequel next week. But by the time the sequel had come out, you know, I'd pretty much grown out of that phase. But there was a while there. Like, even my mom, she rented this movie when it came out on video, even though I'd seen it in theaters, and I watched it. God, an uber number of times. And my mom at that point, she she even kept it an extra day because she knew how much I loved the movie and I kept watching it. This is just a huge staple. Now, Logan, we know how you feel about Spider-Man and comic book films. Matt and I, we've reviewed plenty of horror series on this show. Where are you with horror? I always like to ask guests where they stand on the genres before we get into it. I mean, like, I'm not a big slash and gore guy. I'm more of like the cerebral horror, like... Stuff like The Ring or, like, The Exorcist. I mean, I obviously putting those two in the same sentence seems, like, crazy. But the ones that kind of, like, mind fuck you, I'm, I'm more appreciative of because I feel like they're, like, longer lasting. Like, I'm literally going to leave the lights on kind of shit. Freddy Krueger and Jason, like, obviously these are icons of cinematic pop culture. But, like, obviously those movies have their stake, no pun intended, in uh, cinematic history. But I'm more of the, like... I watch, like, when I watch movies like that, like, I want to feel like there's an element of more, I don't want to say that those movies aren't smart, but just more intellectual ways to trick you into scaring you, if that makes any sense. So, for me, it's more like those movies, like, I guess you could say the genre is thriller, whereas, like, I I seek those out more than, like, the gore kind of slasher movies. Which is why Ghostbusters is probably the main staple for you in your household. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, and like Gremlins kind of has the blood and the gore, but like it, and and obviously it's more comedic than anything else. But it's like that kind of stuff, you know. It's more like, and and you know, we'll get into it later. But like, I'm also just the whole practical effects. I'm, I'm a mm. big practical effects advocate, um, you know. And obviously Rick Moranis, who's in this movie, you know, I can watch Little Shop of Horrors until like every day because that plant is just like fascinating to me. You know, it's kind of like it's the the bygone era of special effects 
you know, I mean, I know, Garrett, you're not a huge fan of them, but even stuff with the new Star Wars sequels, like, seeing stuff like that, you can, more realistic and less CGI, um, you know, I'm always a big advocate of just, like, if you can do it that looks real, then that's how I like it, so... And Ghostbusters kind of, like, has a way of doing that. It's really weird when you talk about horror comedies. You know, Matt, we, we did the Scream series last year with Law, and one thing we talked about in those podcasts was those films tended to go a little overboard on the comedy, and the film's tension suffered because of it. My interest in coming back to this series, and this film in particular, watching it with a critical eye, was given who we have starring in this movie, would it go overboard in the same fashion? Because in 1984, horror needed a film like this because they had gone too dark. We had, as Logan mentioned, The Exorcist. We had Amityville Horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th. Yeah, you can argue that some movies in those series had some campy elements, but there was never any balance before 1984 in this movie. So this movie we're going to talk about today really started that level of levity that would take horror to the next step until at least the early 90s before we suffered through more dreck and then Scream came along. I think so, but I would never classify this movie as a horror movie. It has... Oh, absolutely not. It's got, like, quote-unquote scary scenes, but nothing... I don't think there's anything here outside of maybe one moment that would traumatize me as a, as a child. But then again, Toy Story 4 re-triggered my fear of ventriloquist dummies, so... <laughs> you, know. you know, you're right. The, the genre kind of needed some tweaking. But there were ghosts around this time. They were out to get you. But here, they're uh -huh. just... They're kind of miscreants for the most part. The ghosts in this are almost as chaotic as the gremlins, except there's a religious element, a godlike element to, to these ghosts as far as the hierarchy. So it's interesting, but, you know, between this and Nightmare on Elm Street in 84 as well, I think it was a needed piece to keep the genre viable. You know, we covered the never-ending story movie in our fantasy retro, and the wolf slash the death of Artax in the movie was far more terrifying oh. than anything in this movie. Oh, yeah, same year, too. Yeah. Now, let's get into this movie a little bit. Dan Aykroyd, he's a little nuts. This was a much bigger script, originally called Ghost Smashers. It was going to be much darker, but it was Ramis who came in and livened it up, put pressure on to make it have more of a comedic edge. Who knows what Ghostbusters would have been if Ramis had not stepped in. I have a feeling we'd be talking about this in most, much the same realm as The Exorcist and other darker movies, because... Dan Aykroyd just really had a dark edge to him when he was writing the script. Logan, did you have the Ghostbusters Nintendo game? I did not, actually. Oh, loved that game. Uh, they had a kick-ass board game where you drop a skull down a hole and hope it doesn't hit your character as you're going up steps to save the building. God, there were just so many cool things about this movie that I just adored. But All right, enough build-up. Let's go ahead and get into the movie, shall we, boys? Do it. So... We start with a creepy Elmer Bernstein note, and before we get into the film, I have to say, I think the score in this movie kind of gets under praise because of the iconic nature of this movie's theme song, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But I think when we go creepy, which is only a few moments in this movie, I think the score is pretty good. Where do you guys fall on the uh, Elmer Bernstein score in this film? I mean, there's so many film scores that come out of this decade of movies, the 80s. They were far more, I guess you would say, successful and like having such an impact on cinema and earworms. But it's definitely like the, the little like things of the piano notes in the library that you're talking about. And then even just the kind of the bubbling, like fun little score that plays when like the Ghostbusters are kind of like riffing on each other and I'm sure improvising it doesn't have the same element of movie score that like you would think of but I think it's definitely something that like fits the tone of the movie you know balance 
there's a fine line between you know the the scarier elements and the the more comedic portions of the film and i i that that comedic i guess you could say part of the score is like very recognizable and and to me definitely like something that like when i hear it it kind of like brings me like back and i think they actually used a lot of those same notes in the uh the ghostbusters video game that was made for more like the modern age systems like when it came out mm-hmm. a couple years ago like the xbox and the and the wii version so hearing those notes definitely like kind of gave put a smile on my face score's good but I, I don't think there's anything that's hummable or really one of those those face huggers that gets in your brain and, and you know kind of wrestles with it. But I, I think it's more than more than serviceable. Like I, I think it works in the context of the movie, but it doesn't have any staying power when I stop watching it outside of the theme song. Which my question was when you had the soundtrack as a kid, was every track just a Ray Parker Jr. song? <laughs> no, no, there were a lot of good songs in it. The Cleaning Up the Town was one of my favorites. Magic, which we're going to hear. I used to replay that song a lot. The song where the ghosts pretty much go crazy towards the end of the film. Now, they, they also had a few of Elmer Bernstein's tracks on there, maybe one or two. The theme song got a lot of airplay in my room. I played it a lot, but there were a lot of good songs on that soundtrack. I still listen to it to this day. So... We're seeing this whole librarian. She's going through her normal routine of her daily work life. She's going through a card catalog, which, man, that brought up some not-so-great memories. And uh, in the the midst of this... Oh, my (laughs) God. Yes. See, I'm not quite young enough to not know what that was. Okay, I wasn't sure if you did. Wow. That was around until I was probably about 13 or 14 when your teachers let you browse the Internet. Because there was more credibility. Mm -hmm. In the midst of this, books are switching shelves. Spirits are giving a fuck you to Librarian by fucking up the entire card catalog. (laughs) And the woman is running away, only to run into something we don't see. All we see is that it lights up her face and blows her back. Pretty good pre-title sequence, I think. What do you guys think of this opening scene? This movie breaks a lot of conventions. One of the most distinct comedies I think ever made. And it starts with, the movie doesn't make any pretense about the fact that ghosts exist. It's not a theory. It's not a, you know, like a hypothesis that only the the Ghostbusters believe in. Right off the bat, they establish that there's validity to the supernatural. It's not played as a reveal. I mean, it is when you see what the actual ghosts look like. But this opening scene, unless you thought they were setting up like a Scooby-Doo type thing where it's a prank, someone pretending to be a ghost. I like how they're pretty upfront with how they do it. I can't classify it as scary, but I think it sets a good vibe for the the rest of the movie. Yeah, well, given what me and you have reviewed over the years, it's not going to make you jump out of your socks or anything, but yeah, I, I think it was a pretty good setup. Yeah, I mean, it's a solid cold open. It doesn't really kind of reveal anything right off the bat, which I do like. That like slow burn of like whatever. It's not a super slow burn, but like, I'm always, like, appreciative of, like, hiding the element of surprise until, like, you can actually, like, utilize it in the, in the movie. But, like, no, it's just any of the Ghostbusters is basically, like, we're setting the stage for what's to come. And I think it's just a very solid, just, like, leading in opening, and then you get it right. It's, you know, she screams, and as soon as, like, that's done and everything's blown around, like, you get, like, that theme song, and it's just like, oh, okay. Like, it's just nice to lead into, like, the rest of the movie. Yeah, and Logan, you mentioned the practical effects earlier in this podcast, and I gotta say, in watching this, it really came to mind. We're seeing the books switching shelves, and even seeing those cards like leap out of the drawers. Even today, you look at it. Of course, there was no CGI. You're like, how did they do that? It's a really nice precursor to what we're gonna get. 
1984, I mean, obviously they look dated, but for what the time was, it's it's really and, oh, and yeah. especially in a comedy like this, because I don't even I, I'm sure you mentioned the budget at the beginning as you always do, uh, but uh, you know just thirty mil, kind of thirty, yeah, for which in 1984 I'm sure that was a lot, but like it looks mm-hmm. really good and it still looks really good today. The scare is offset right away, though, as we hear the theme song blasting in our ears, as well as the iconic red circle with a line through it trapping a ghost. Ah, Ghostbusters the theme, done by the one and only Ray Parker Jr., though it was going to be sung by Huey Lewis in the news, but when they stepped away, Parker stepped in, and wow, what a theme song. I had this 45 before it was even a soundtrack album, and like I mentioned, I had the soundtrack, which I got for Christmas that year. Funny side note, Huey Lewis actually sued Ray Parker in the years ensuing because he thought the song Ghostbusters sounded a little too much like his hit. Um, I want a new God. drug. Well, Wasn't well, I want well, a new drug? Yes. Yeah. And you know what? You listen to those songs. I, I listened to them right before this podcast, kind of listening to them back to back. It does have some similarities, I would say. But I love this opening theme. Guys, how do you feel about the Ghostbusters theme? Aside from when we talked about the score, like this is iconic theme song halloween song like it's just like it gets in your ear like you're singing along like it's just like it's a it's a perfect little tune to go along with this movie and they adapted it into the cartoon later on and it's just like we're gonna get to this later well you know what i'm gonna say that for later when we get to that movie but i'm gonna say this don't ever remake this song don't ever do it you know just <laughs> let it let the original be as it is like just leave it alone oh. because it's perfect and everyone Oh, poor Bobby Brown. He is so upset that you said that, sir. I'm not even talking about Bobby Brown. <laughs> I know. That was the joke. It's okay. I don't listen to it with regularity, much like the movie. My taste in music is it's very eclectic, I'll say that. So it, it works. Like, I'm not going to critique it. I'm not going to. It's the theme. Everybody knows it. What, what the fuck do you want me to add? You know what I love about this is these guys are being sold as salesmen. You know, somebody's going to try revealing them as being con men. And this is like the perfect commercial theme, you know, which is what Ray Parker was going for. You know, this is a guy who was a session musician, you know, didn't really have too many hits. And he was trying to think of how he was going to do this song. And it hit him that you got to do it like a commercial. And it works perfect for this movie and what these guys are trying to do in the course of it. No. Aside from this song, I'm not familiar with this guy's catalog. Has he done anything of note either before or after this movie? He was, like I said, he was a session musician. And okay. what session musicians, my uncle was a session musician with a lot of people too. And what they did was they would go and they would help other people with their songs. And he would play guitar or something okay. like that. But he's written a song for Barry White. And he's been around. He um, did some stuff on uh, Stevie, Stevie Wonder's album and Chaka Khan and Tina Turner. So he, he's done, he's, he was around. But. How Ivan Reitman and company decided to pick him out of the slew of musicians, which was around 1984, like you said, Logan, I mean, this was the thing, was to get a music video on MTV. And uh, how they picked him, I have no idea, but I think his presence works in this. Mm. Now, this is when we're introduced to one of our Ghostbusters, perhaps the Ghostbuster, the one who will be causing a hell of a lot of trouble behind the scenes as the series progresses. Bill Murray is here as Peter Venkman, doing just as Peter does, being an asshole, and being great at it as he works at getting in the pants of Jennifer Runyon at this poor other sap's expense. How do we like Peter Venkman here, boys? I don't want to say Bill Murray's been typecast for a lot of his roles, because I know he's been he's definitely done dramatic stuff, but he's kind of like this snarky, asshole-ish, kind of like bitey comedian who, 
you know, he's kind of like, I don't want to say takes things for granted, but like kind of just like when Ray comes in with all his theories or whatever about Supernatural, he just kind of like, you know, makes a joke about it because that's how he is. He's just, you know, not cold, but more just like, all right, well, like whatever. It's definitely like a um, like that time frame in casting because like Bill Murray was in Saturday Night Live, is a big on Saturday Night Live, and obviously all these other guys, you know, have comedian backgrounds or, or comedy backgrounds. So like he's the jokester, which you know, and with all the characters or the the main guys in the movie, they kind of have their own role to play. And I think you know he kind of adds the most comedic elements to the movie because of his nature, but like. I love Peter Bankman. He's great. And he's like, I like the whole bitey tone of him and kind of how he just kind of takes everything and at, at face value with this whole supernatural and scientific element. He's the ultimate con man in this movie. Like, he only goes on this Ghostbuster journey because, A, it's an opportunity for him to get laid, and B, it's for the money. So it's an interesting dynamic because you've got to differentiate your, your three main characters to an extent. But Logan's right that this in Stripes sort of set the precedent for a lot of what Bill Murray was going to do, you know, sarcastic, sardonic, smart-ass characters. I don't think this is how the character would have been portrayed if John Belushi had lived to be in it. I certainly don't think he would have been the snarky. He probably would have been more of a wild man. Like, I think if John Belushi played it, his comedy, I don't think it would be really deadpan. I think he'd be much more manic, and perhaps Ray would be toned down a little bit more because that was Belushi's style for the most part. So I think he, yeah, that's one of my favorite Bill Murray roles. Although it's a little creepy that he's hitting on college girls who are probably just barely over the age of 18. <laughs> Logan, you mentioned his dramatic stuff. You know, he was even being this way even back then. One of the things he needed to have before he accepted this role was he wanted to do a remake of The Razor's Edge, which is a huge dramatic part, which had come out and was a flop. So I think him being in this was a kind of a bounce back role for him. And I agree with you. He is the ultimate sardonic asshole. And Matt, you're right too. Like the con man element of this, he's the one who gives the big speech to Ray saying, call it karma. He's the one pushing for this because he knows there's money involved and not just for Ray, but for him. And Bill Murray plays that perfectly. And uh, like I said, we'll, we're definitely going to talk about what he means to the series as we move further in the series. But I love him in this. There are so many parts in this that are ad-libbed. Bill Murray would just ad-lib on set. The hitting of Ray as Ray comes in and he's bopping him in the head and jumping over the railing and all that. That was all Bill Murray. And yeah, he brings a lot to this. And I think you're right, Matt. I think John Belushi, I liked Belushi. I just rewatched Animal House and Blues Brothers. Not just for this, but just a couple months ago, just to kind of get back into what comedy meant back then. And I think you're right. He would have been way more manic with this. And it would have been a much different part. And it's hard to play, as Mike tended to do in our M. Night series, rewrite everything to see what it would have been like. But I agree. I'm, I'm happy with what we get with Bill Murray here. My favorite part of this scene is when the guy storms out and he says, Peter can keep the $5. Like, he's doing this for five fucking dollars? <laughs> You can keep the five bucks. I will, mister. <laughs> so just as Peter is on the verge of sealing the deal on Jennifer Runyon, in comes Ray to say there is evidence of supernatural activity in a library. You know why I love this scene? It, it just has such a natural feeling to it. I mentioned the for- aforementioned scene of Peter bopping Ray in the head, saying he was in the middle of something, and Ray just getting excited that they have something huge on their hands. This is a great way of getting us in, and it just it just has a natural feeling to it. Do you guys agree with that, that the natural flow of this movie is what kind of makes it work? Yeah, I definitely think that like the chemistry between 
Venkman, Stans, and uh, later on Egon, and then even later on Winston, like, it doesn't feel forced. Like, it just feels like a natural progression of, like, these guys, well, the first three know each other pretty well. Obviously, they work at the same university or college in the science department, and they just, I don't know if it's just because they handle so much behind the scenes, but, like, it does feel like their partnership, quote-unquote, just feels like they work together, they're partners, blah, 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 and... The way they talk to each other feels like they're, you know, I wouldn't say normally f- friends per se, but more like, you know, they've worked together for years and now that they, like, they have this, just like the camaraderie with each other. It's amazing that the dynamics work as well as they do considering there's a considerable amount of improvisation throughout this entire movie, which, if you're going on a scene-by-scene basis, can really throw off your overall dynamics. They're also helping the fact that these guys have all worked together before, you know, between SNL. And then, uh, I don't know if it was before or after this, but Bill Murray and Hal Ramos were in Stripes together. That was before. Oh, yeah, that was yeah, before. It was yeah, it was year before. And Caddyshack was 1980, which, mm. you know, Harold isn't in, but he directed it. Right. So, so yeah, they, they all so kind of pe- know each other. And the only, the only thing that would have really thrown this off is if you swap out Harold Ramos for Chevy Chase. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It which was... It would have been who kills who first. Yeah. Obviously, Chevy Chase has his time in the sun during this decade, but even later on. But I just feel like this part, these these three work, and I feel like Chevy Chase would have been too much of another face. Like I didn't like Harold Ramis. I don't really know besides from Stripes back then. But I just feel like these three work way better together than like I feel like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray in the same movie just doesn't. I mean, I know they're a Caddyshack, but like I feel like the name recognition is better here. Completely agree with you, and in fact, I think that. No matter how much we say about Bill Murray being an asshole, I think if Chevy Chase was here, Bill Murray wouldn't be the one we're talking about as being the asshole of the series. I'll just leave it at that. So Peter's going on about how Ray and Spangler have been meeting and greeting every single schizo and person who claims to have seen a ghost and then asking him where it's gotten them. You just get the feeling that Peter is just not into this at all. It changes after this scene we're going to talk about coming up, but I love how it just seems that he's been literally dragged into this ghost-busting business. It's so funny seeing the way he's walking down the steps later, and he just could not give less of a fuck. <laughs> So it is here where we get perhaps my favorite intro of the movie, that of Egon, played by the late, great Harold Ramis. I just love how Peter's fucking with him, moving his hands on the table, throwing a book <laughs> down by his ears. Again, the movie just has a real naturalistic quality. You really get the feeling that there were some instances where Ivan Reitman just kind of rolled cameras and just let these guys go on without one scripted word being read. And I think that helps this movie immensely, as I just mentioned. So they're interviewing the woman from the library, asking her about if her family has had a history of schizophrenia or if she's using any drugs. And then he comes out with, are you menstruating right now? Um, that was one instance. I'm a scientist. By the way, out of all three of these guys, I would say that Venkman is definitely the most quotable. Egon has a couple of really solid lines that has been used by me, or I've just said in like regular, or not regular context, but I think Venkman is definitely the most quotable in this movie. I agree with you. You know, Ramis doesn't have lines per se, but he has a few gestures in this Mm -hmm. that... On repeated viewings, you definitely notice, and the more you notice them, the more you realize exactly what he's doing here. By the way, that menstruating line, that was one instance where I nudged my mom and asked, what does that mean, mom? <laughs> and uh, and that was that's last, not the last time I did that. Together during- <laughs> God, I can't wait to asshole. see what the reaction was during the dream sequence that comes up later. Oh, it's just about ready to say. That was not the last time I did that in this movie, and we'll talk about that later. So they're moving in down the steps into the space where the opening scene took place. 
Even when there's slime on the card catalog, Egon says he wants a sample and Peter responds, someone blows their nose and you want to keep it. <laughs> Again, that feels like an ad lib line. And you're right, Matt. The way this movie works is amazing considering that I think they literally had maybe a five-page script by the time they shot this. They see some hugely stacked books and then they find a woman in ghost form just looking at them, telling them to be quiet. And when they make the motion to get her, she turns into a monster and growls at them. A moment that's played for laughs, but it kind of scared me as a seven-year-old. That moment got to me. You know what I really love about this scene? Ray's been talking up that there, there are supernatural activities going on and him and Egon are so excited about getting to see it. But it's really the moment that they realize once they get within distance, of her, they have no idea what the hell they're going to do. And they say get her. <laughs> just, like, that's, that's all you need to know. Yeah. But uh, Peter calls it out where he's like, alright, so what do we do? And everyone's like, we don't know. <laughs> they're throwing their arms up. And Peter's just like, let me have a word with you, Francine. <laughs> I don't even know why he calls him Francine, but it just works, you know? It's just, ah. Uh. Well, it's the, it's the finally you get your validity to your theory, and it's the okay, now what? It reminds me of that South Park episode where they're playing World of Warcraft, and they finally beat the guy after months of training. It's like, oh, what do we do now? Now we just play the game. It's literally that same argument where it's, what the hell do we do? But this is where they take some Three Stooges where he pulls them by the ear. And one of my favorite lines in the movie where it's like, you're right, nobody can stack books that like this. It's just this pile of books in the middle of the hallway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it showcases how, like, unprepared they are. They have all this thought process about the supernatural, and, and it's so comedic in its play because it's like, all right, it is, what do we do now? And, like, Ray's just like, okay, moving close. And, the, like, they don't even discuss it. He's just like, get her. Like, what are they planning to do? Like, if she's, you know, if they pass right through her, then, like, how, what the fuck are they going to do then? And it's just like, and obviously the reaction is because, like, they scare him away, but it also sets up, like, okay, we obviously need to figure out, like, you know, a plan. But they went in there with, like, having nothing and that just showcases how like unprepared for this whole element of supernatural takedown more or less you know has to play out for the rest of the movie so we cut to ray getting an earful from peter about the plan going wrong and when they get back to the campus they're informed that their grant has been terminated to which peter responds but the kids love us <laughs> uh, my question is what exactly did these guys do they had a grant to do what exactly investigate ghosts investigate paranormal or just psychologists what exactly did they do I'm guessing they never... just study what the paranormal. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know if it's ever really brought up in the movie. But I'm guessing what Ray has theories about. But obviously, yeah. if they had waited a little bit, they'd have been like, "Oh, okay, like you're fine. Like you, we got it. You got ghosts. So, but whatever." Then there'd be no movie. Exactly. <laughs> Peter then looks at Ray as a money bag and convinces him to mortgage a house and go into ghost busting for themselves. And I love that while drinking, the fact that they were thrown out of the university means they can now do professional paranormal eliminations. Mm. And something else Peter says here made me laugh ironically. Just the franchise rights alone will make them millions. Little did they know. <laughs> oh, just a great set of lines here, which, as Matt pointed out earlier, it just reveals just the greediness of Bankman. And then they come out of the bank, like in the scene later, and doesn't Peter say, like, everybody has three mortgages nowadays? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got, like, by the way, you're going to be paying 28% interest on that house. This insane number. And he's like, you didn't even bargain with the guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> They get what I'm guessing is an old firehouse whose pole still works, and oh, we didn't get our firehouse. intro. That's the one yes. Ghostbusters toy that I always wanted and I never got. The whole firehouse. Really? Yeah. They had that? 
That well, from uh, the cartoon. Not, I mean, it was based on okay. the movie, obviously, but that one from the cartoon. Uh-huh. I wanted that so bad, and I never curse you, Santa. You know, <laughs> but yeah, the, the firehouse is like. I mean, obviously, they don't have the bells and whistles of it yet, but the firehouse in and of itself is like iconic, as, and I'm sure it's a it's a tourist trap for people going to New York. Mm-hmm. We then get our intro to our inn in this movie. Sure, we've seen our title characters go through some shit to find out, yes, they can make money on the ghostbusting business, but we don't have an outsider experiencing this stuff that we follow until we meet Dana Barrett. Now, you can go back as far as my Alien Retro from years ago, or even our recent review of The Village, to find out that Sigourney Weaver is my favorite actor alive. It's no surprise that I find her to be pretty good in this, even though she really had to lobby hard for this role, because she hadn't really done comedy except on Broadway, on stage, and um, Ivan Reitman went ahead and went with her. How do we like Sigourney Weaver, a.k.a. Dana Baird, in this movie, boys? I mean, for me, she works well as Dana. She's kind of like the outsider looking into this whole thing. She's the one who's affected and plays a prominent role in the movie. It's interesting that you say that, like, she hasn't done comedy. She's not bad in this movie by any means, but she doesn't really have any, like, comedic portion. Like, she plays off of... Peter mostly, and, like, the whole situation that's going on. But I think she's, you know, she does a good job. And obviously she's, and pro- I mean, she was an alien and, you know, obviously has been in, in so much since. But, like, she, she, she's a very interesting character. Obviously somebody who kind of brings the Ghostbusters to the forefront of the major problem that's affecting the city. So, I, you know, I think she does a good job. It's fascinating that she had to lobby for this role because I don't classify her as a character who's there exclusively for yucks. If anything, she's the one who gets thrown through the ringer the most of anybody, and she kind of has to do the most as far as dynamics throughout the movie. So the fact that you mentioned that is kind of blowing my mind because Sigourney Weaver can do anything. Yeah. I love Working Girl as much as anybody, and she's such a just icy bitch in that movie. And then you watch something like this where you totally see why someone like Dankman would be attracted to her, but she's not dumb enough to fall for his stick at first. Yeah, Working Girl would come out four years after this, but you're absolutely right. She has proven that she's great at comedy since this movie. She was in a movie called Heartbreakers from the early 2000s, which I definitely don't recommend, but she was funny in that movie. So, Logan, you point out that she doesn't have too many quote-unquote lines in this, but she does have to play off these guys, and she is our in, and I think she works very well as the everyday woman who gets herself way in over her head. Now, she's greeted by Louis Tully, played by Rick Moranis. Now, this was originally going to be played by John Candy, who was taking this role into weird directions, like he had a put-on foreign accent, even had a set of Schnauzer dogs with him. And when the old Creative Differences tag hit, he left the production and the role was picked up by Moranis. And still, all these years later, he might be my favorite character of this film. How do we like Louis Tully, boys? Listen, I'm going to just say it right now. Rick Moranis, anything he touches turns to gold. I love Rick Moranis. Um, and obviously in this role, he just plays Rick Moranis to the T. Like, he's just this bumbling little guy who just is clumsy and he runs into walls. He locks himself out of his apartment. I have no, I have nothing to say, but I love John Candy, but I think this role was definitely made better for Rick Moranis. Maybe that guy had seen My Blue Heaven. Listen, <laughs> Garrett, I will defend that movie too. <laughs> I love My Blue Heaven. Wow. That's a movie I watched with my dad growing up all the time. I'm not saying everything Rick Moranis is in is wonderful. He is, but like I like My Blue Heaven, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, that's it. I have a different reading on, on his performance. I get this is an entire jab at Woody Allen mm. because he's, uh. he's fast-talking. He sucks at relationships. 
you know, he's very nevish. Social interactions aren't his best. He's remarkably neurotic. So I don't think John Candy definitely would not have played that up. If anything, his would have been an Orson Welles impression like he did on uh, Billy Crystal's show. Not that that's a bad thing, but it would have been very different than what Moranis does. So I think he might be the funniest, as far as consistency, he might be the funniest person in the movie. So Dana walks in her apartment, finds that her TV's been left on, and this is when we see the Ghostbusters commercial, which was great. She's unloading her groceries, and here's where we are introduced to Stay Puft Marshmallows, which I thought was a nice setup for later. Her eggs start frying on the counter. She opens her fridge, only to hear the name Zool. I thought this was a nice bit of tension here that sets up the second and third act story very well. How do you guys feel about this whole scene of her in her uh, kitchen? It's a very interesting way of introducing, I guess, the main villain of the story. But like you said, Garrett, there's a little Easter egg of the Steve Puff marshmallows. It's creepy. I mean, it's a creepy scene. This movie does a really good job of kind of balancing the comedy elements with the scary elements. And for anybody to see anything like that in their fridge is, is terrifying. But it, it, you know, it obviously leads Dana into researching who these guys are, what they're about, and... uh you know, it's a nice little segue, like you said, for the other parts of the film that we get into later. Yeah, and the, the Stay Puff Easter egg, I mean, that was something that was talked about on my school ground. We would talk about it, and people were like, oh, really? I need to go see that again to mm-hmm. see that. Like, nobody really picked up on that, and it, it just blew my mind that there could be an Easter egg like that in a movie. Should I say Easter egg, considering the context of this scene? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I think I said that first, so it's not even Garrett's fault. I think I said, like, it's not even really Easter egg. It's just kind of like a, it's a, ca- a cameo? I don't even know what you would call it. It's a setup. Yeah, sure. That's perfect. I mean, you, you have to establish some kind of a threat. I, I do have questions because it's me being the over-analytic, over-analytical person that I am. So, is the entire hotel complex possessed by this other dimension with Gozer, or is it just her room? I think uh, other people see this shit in their fridge. The building is built on these possessed grounds. So I think she is the first one to have it show up. I, I think it's the whole building, but she's the first one to see the actual paranormal activity going on. So Ray comes up with the Ghostbusters car, another fixer upper. And we are also meeting Janine played by Annie Potts, who Peter Limbass for having bug eyes. <laughs> I, I love this character of Janine, as I feel out of everybody here, Matt and Logan, you guys could probably attest to this. She characterizes the 80s New York attitude, I think, the best. Yeah. You know, she just has that, that what are, Ghostbusters, what do you want? Like, she's just got that whole thing going on. I, I love Annie. I Potts love this scene where Peter comes in, and I think this is a scene where he's just like, any calls, any messages? Yeah. Like, type something, will you? We're paying for this stuff. And then she picks up the phone. Because there's no business. These people, like, Mm -hmm. everybody probably thinks they're, like, a a crook. So, like, they're not getting any calls. It's, like, perfectly setting up these guys, like, have no way of getting any business right now. I love how she doesn't take shit from anybody where she's like, oh, I quit better jobs than this. Like, she's not very up to her employers. She also has a little run-in with Egon, who she seems to have a little crush on and was actually played up a little more in the script. And when she asks if Egon has any hobbies, he responds that he collects spores, molds, and fungus. Uh, (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, So this is when Dana walks in. She describes what happened at her apartment with what looks like a spaghetti strainer on her head. And they're looking at her with predator vision, it looks like, (laughs) as Egon has this bright ash. Egon has this bright-ass flashlight on his head. This is doing a good job of giving us exposition in a very entertaining way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just funny because, like, she's trying to be so serious. Egon's got the flashlight. He, like, blinds Peter. It's just like she's she's playing it completely 100% serious, and there's just chaos happening around her. 
Yeah, she doesn't want to be rude, but at the same time, you sense the breaking point could be any any instance. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter takes Dana to her apartment to check her out. Oh, wait, I mean to check out her <laughs> apartment. This is good stuff. He's playing the piano using this utensil that really doesn't make any sense, this little fucking ghost thing. I always wanted a toy of this for some reason, but <laughs> I would like pretend like there were utensils in my house that were this little thing that could detect ghosts, I guess is what he's doing here. Dana calls him out as not acting like a scientist. He's more like a game show host, which, by the way, was an ad lib from her. That was supposed to be, you act more like a car salesman. And she changed it to game show host, which works perfect for this scene. Absolutely. He makes his way to the kitchen, and we get a huge buildup to him opening the fridge. And he jumps all over her for all the junk food in it. <laughs> also, there's a scene where he plays the notes on the piano. And anytime I see a piano, I just basically mimic that, oh, that scene. Like, same here. They hate this. That's what yes. he says. They hate this. I like this because not only is it funny, but we are getting to know someone who might think she's crazy, even though we've seen what she's seen. You know, it, it, it sets that up pretty well. It works because it doesn't go as, especially nowadays, you know, I was expecting this movie to be very dated as far as Vink in particular with his treatment of women in particular. But he's, he's an absolute misogynist and he's taken to task for it, so... I don't think it dates horribly in that respect, like a lot of movies do around this time. Like, speaking of Bill Murray, I think Meatballs kind of dates terribly, and, you know, stuff like Revenge of the Nerds, so this is pretty well done. So the Ghostbusters are having what seems to be the final meal of their lives due to the lack of business. Slow down, chew your food. <laughs> chew your food, it's the last of the money. Uh, when Janine gets a call, and the Ghostbusters are off and running. So 30 minutes in... And we get them in full gear, going after a character we will come to know as Slimer. Nobody liked having these proton packs on their backs. These things weighed a ton. And yeah, everybody just bitched and moaned about having these things on. Little known fact, well, as you said, Matt, this was going to star John Belushi as Peter Venkman. But when he died, Aykroyd came up with Slimer as kind of an homage mm. to him. And if you look at this character, drinking wine, picking out at a table, you can definitely see some John Belushi in him. I, I thought that was a nice touch, making this a an homage to his lost friend. We also get the introduction of one of the most famous cinematic movie cars in the Ecto-1. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mentioned that uh, in the scene previous that Ray had come up with the right, for the first yeah, time, but this, this is, is it in its full whistles, glory, yeah, right? All the bells and whistles. Yeah. I just love this entire saga played out at the hotel. I love the guy in the elevator who they convinced that they're exterminators. Uh, I love that they're shooting at the maid. <laughs> the no smoking sign in the elevator as they're wearing nuclear proton packs. I love how every single room they go into is just full of destruction. Like, that was a big thing in the 80s and 70s, you know? Like, that's how comedy was. Comedy was about getting laughs, yeah, but for some reason, destroying stuff made things funny. This whole set of scenes might be my favorite section of the movie. Oh, it's, I mean, it's great. And, like, I love the, um, like, Ray doesn't have a lot of quotable lines, but I think, Gary, you touched upon, like, his facial expressions. When he has got the cigarette in his mouth and it's literally just hanging oh, from his yes. lip and he sees Slimer, that's, like, one of the, like, it's just hilarious. First of all, how's gravity helping? that cigarette stay on his lid but then like yeah. and it's just like you know seeing Slimer fly around and like again going back to the effects I definitely think it was puppetry but like the way that he moves and stuff like that and like how he's weighted it's crazy to see how it works Venkman getting slimed you know Egon with the PKE meter like the elevator scene where like Ray lights up and like they kind of step away from him I always thought that he farted mm -hmm. when I was watching that as a kid but like <laughs> I was like, I get it because it's like he could just like explode and they wouldn't even know because like they haven't tested it yet. So yeah. I think it's like a great series of events. They don't even know what they're heading into. And like they're just like, it, again, it's kind of like mirroring the whole library scene. Like they have 
the equipment now, but, like, they still don't know what the hell they're doing. It was smart to split them up, too, because you get to see all their different sort of comedic stylings at work. Ray, it's the, you know, facial expressions. Egon, it's just him locking eyes with that guy when he's at the meter. And there's just awkward silence yes. and he keeps walking. And then, of course, you know, and then Bill Murray gets, you know, the show stealing stuff with, he slimed me. I also love how that we've never seen them test out this equipment beforehand. It's literally, it's there. We don't really see it get built. You ride with it. And speaking of stuff that would not be in a 2021 Ghostbusters, or even a 2016 one for that matter, which we'll talk about, these guys are chain-smoking, <laughs> yes. beer-drinking, blue-collar guys. You don't even see people smoke on camera nowadays, let alone, like, back in the day, it was, like, fucking everybody. And according to Dan Aykroyd in an interview that was conducted around the time that the 2016 movie was coming out, that was all saliva that was keeping that cigarette on. He did not; They did not wow. use any tricks to keep that on. That was just insane. This is also where we get another setup for later because we hear that it would be bad if they crossed the streams. We don't need to hear more, and when it comes up later, we know it's bad news. So I like I like this little setup. And Matt, what you just said about the the equipment being built, that's what would happen if Nolan made this, right? We'd have to see all this shit being built in front of our eyes before they go out, and that would be a whole 45 minutes or so before they actually go out in the town. At least. Yeah. So the creature is worn out, trying to rest on the ceiling, but this is when the Ghostbusters attack. Ray opens the trap, telling them not to look at the trap, <laughs> which Egon does. Trap, right? uh, doesn't no. seem to hurt him any when he does it, but... <laughs> also, it I is. love when they're sitting up the ballroom, and then Bankman rips the tablecloth, and he goes, the flower! Like, it's yes. Just, oh, God, it's just... Yes. I, I just love it. Naturalistic yeah. as hell, isn't it? They trap him, and I love how when talking about the price, and this is the gestures I was mentioning earlier, Egon is kind of sending Venkman signals to up the price a bit. Watch the scene again. You will see Peter looks at Egon as he's talking, and Egon just keeps moving the price up as he's looking at him. His fingers are going up to raise the price. This is just such good, good stuff. Well, that was a great follow-up on the prior thing where he's like, he didn't even negotiate with the guy at the bank. Yes, good call. To have them raise money. Yeah, fantastic. And I love how he's just like, oh, we can just put it right back. Oh, we certainly <laughs> can, Mr. Vagman. <laughs> oh, so great. But it's going to cost just that much to just to fucking repair that ballroom. Mm. Well, what would an 80s movie be, boys, without a montage? And what you know it, this is when we launch into a montage. Now, question for you guys. I know this does a good job of showing us that the ghost busting business is good and there's some major activity going on around the city now. But do you think we could have used maybe one or two more scenes of them trapping ghosts before all this? I mean, I would absolutely say yes, but like obviously they might just be doing this for like a budgetary thing. I'm just kind of mm -hmm. showing like a passage of time, like, okay, we're catching ghosts, blah, blah, blah. We're becoming more familiar with the business. We're becoming more successful with the business. It does happen a little earlier than it should, but I feel like the kind of the point has been set, like, okay, like, it's basically the movie saying like, okay, these are the proton pass work. This is how the trap works. Okay, it's pretty much... The Slimer scene segueing into, like, I don't want to say the third act of the movie, but, like, now we're getting more towards, like, the climax. So I guess it makes sense. But, like, yeah, it would have been nice to see them kind of, like, hone their craft a little bit more. But I think you could have used a scene with them having a little bit more difficulty with catching ghosts. They caught one. And once they have it locked in and it stops moving around, they seem to do it pretty easily. I would have liked to have seen more of a gradual escalation so it feels like they're screwed once you get to the final climax. 
This is also where we get the infamous ghost blowjob <laughs> scene. Now, this was part of a much bigger scene, but they narrowed it down to this. If you notice, Ray's wearing this is a Civil War outfit when all this is going down because it was a bigger scene. But 1984, man, what a great year to be a kid. Because in three PG-rated movies, I saw a heart ripped out, a groan exploded in a microwave, and my first on-screen blowjob. Like, this was so, something to behold as a kid in the 80s. Logan, when you first saw this, did you know exactly nope. what was going on here? Not or a clue. <laughs> it wasn't until later. I would say probably like, I mean, I don't even know how old I was. It was like, oh, okay, PG? Really? Like, wow. Yeah. And this opened the same day as Gremlins. The same stuff, like adult stuff is getting on screen yeah. under people's noses. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this probably became fodder for the PG-13 rating. It's crazy to think that it was several years earlier, Jaws was rated PG, and, like, there was no PG-13. Because that, I mean, this is, like, I understand it's all implied, but, like, that to me would be, like, if that happened in a movie today, I feel like that would be borderline R. Now, it is after the montage we get our intro to Winston, played by Ernie Hudson. This character was originally written for Eddie Murphy, and he was actually going to be with them the entire movie. He was actually the one who was going to be slimed earlier in the movie. But Eddie Murphy was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> and said no. It was actually a different reason, uh, believe it or not. So Eddie Murphy was one of the last big movie stars to sign a studio-specific contract where he was only allowed to make movies at this time for Paramount. This was Columbia, so he contractually couldn't do it. Because if you notice, all of his other movies, like, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, those were all Paramount. Interesting. Yeah, because Dan Aykroyd had a relationship with him after they did Trading Places. So I did find it odd that after that experience together, he wouldn't come back for this. But you're saying he was contractually obligated to not be able to do it. Yeah, and then they got Ernie Hudson. <laughs> it's like, all right, Eddie Murphy's not around. Yeah. Who else do we get? Uh, shit. <laughs> To find somebody. But here's the thing about Ernie Hudson, and I'm going to defend this casting. Are you guys with me that another comedian on screen would probably have been a little too much? We got three lunkheads in this movie. Don't you think Eddie Murphy being here would be just too much for one movie to yeah. handle? Well, if that was Eddie Murphy, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, they paint Winston as an everyman. I feel like Eddie Murphy, I'm sure he would do a, a great job, but I feel like it just doesn't work as well because Ernie Hudson's more like of a, he's like, I wouldn't, I don't really know his, you know, library work around this time. Like, he was more unknown. So I feel like he fit, he fit into that role more. And this, obviously, I advocate for this guy, too, because he is the only one of these remaining cast members who, like, will physically, not obviously now, but he will go to cons, he will wear a Ghostbusters jumpsuit, he will stand next to an inflatable state of Marshall Man. Like, he is so proud of his work with these movies that, like, he will go to cons and like sign and meet with fans and that's also cool too because like none of the other dudes are doing it yeah years and years ago when i first started this show i interviewed a guy who did a documentary on ghostbusters called Ghostheads, and he said that of all the ghostbusters like ernie hudson anytime he calls him up he's like oh yeah let's do it let's do it he had a ghostbusters podcast for a while i think it was across the streams podcast and anytime he asked him to interview he's yeah 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 and all the other guys yeah. fuck no so he yeah he's always been very accommodating although he has lashed out against this role a little bit saying that he always felt like he wasn't really a part of the group he always felt like he was kind of there and this isn't a black and white thing this is just the way he feels about the way he was integrated into this plot the fact that he wasn't with them the entire time he always kind of yeah. felt like an outsider i mean it's sad because it's like i have a ghostbusters poster in college and i bought it and i was like it was i was like why isn't winston on it because like i understand mm -hmm. he's only showing up maybe like 45 minutes and he's not even there like frequently for he like he is a member i think you need 
with this character particularly, you need someone who feels down to earth. The guy who just wants a nine to five job with a steady paycheck, as he says. Also, the only guy who has a religious component. Which, which yeah. the movie, the most fascinating thing about this movie is that from a thematic and subtext level, it's not about anything. Even though it sets up ideas like with the EPA, you know, you think, oh, is this movie going to be about anti-regulations? Nope. Is the movie going to be about religion versus Winston being confronted by his faith being questioned? No, it's not about that. They go yeah. after the university and the hotel very, I don't want to call them the elite, but snobs versus slobs was big around this time, so mm. really Ghostbusters, when you really analyze it, it's about guys who hunt ghosts. That's pretty much what there is. Well, that goes with the naturalistic quality of it. I'm glad we got somebody not known for his comedic skills, but I, I do have to say, Ernie Hudson has some pretty great, if dry, lines a little later. So he shows off his skills a little bit, too, a little later on. So Winston's getting interviewed by Janine, and when Ray walks in, we see perhaps the quickest hiring in history as he flat out just says, you're hired, and gives him a tour of the place. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dana is leaving from rehearsing her new concert when she runs into Peter, who tells her the name of Zool, who's a demigod ruled by Gozer. After all this, Peter slick talks his way into getting a date with her. I love that, you know, this is a huge apartment that she's in. Can you actually afford this apartment being a touring musician? I guess in 1984 you could. Yeah, I mean, can Peter Parker afford an apartment in New York being Spider-Man? But here we are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Bring it back. That's true. Good point. Always bring it back to Spider-Man, sir. It's a valid point, though. Uh, Sorry. Ray's tour of the trapping system is when we get a line that I still use almost every day of my life when the ghost is, I guess, processing the system. The light is green, which means the trap is clean. I use this a lot when I train people at my job. It's just guaranteed to get a laugh. when I, I just love this line so much. This is also where we meet Walter Peck, played by diehards William Atherton. This guy just made a career out of playing <laughs> just smarmy assholes. He only has three or four scenes in this movie, but he owns all of them. I think he's fantastic, although he is kind of the quintessential Held Ramis villain role. This is a role that was Held Ramis helped write Animal House. There was a villain in that, which was pretty much like this guy. What do you guys think of the Walter Peck character? I mean, he is the non-paranormal antagonist villain uh-huh so he kind of just brings in more of the like questionable ethics of what are you doing is it safe and kind of strong-headed about it i mean obviously he's great at being a dickhead that's what he does best um even a diehard or real genius kind of playing the same character but yeah i mean if not in this movie, then we would not have the This Man Has No Dick line, which I think would have been a huge flaw in this film. <laughs> to be, you know, honest about it, is it necessary? No, but I think it's it brings in another part of the movie where it's just like, is this okay for these guys to be doing? Classify him as a character. He's just an obstacle for the plot. I don't view it as a negative or a positive. Because really, this movie doesn't need another villain outside of Gozer. And even then, Gozer's got five minutes of screen time, if that. Spoiler, um, Jesus. <laughs> we haven't gotten there. Sorry, we're spoiling Jeez, a movie haven't... that's 37 years old that a fucking listener is. Jesus Christ, 37? Is that for real? Wow. That is real. <laughs> we are old. And I guess that makes sense, because I was a year old when the movie came out, and I'm 38. So, that. thank yeah. you. That's the math I should have done myself. <laughs> Peck represents the Environmental Protection Agency, and he says he wants to know more about what the Ghostbusters do, saying he'll get a court order if he doesn't get to see the storage facility, and Peter just kind of shrugs it off. Meanwhile, Spangler gives an idea that the readings he's had lately mean that something very big, like Big Twinkie Big, 
is headed their way, to which Winston says, that's a big Twinkie. Just a great little scene here. Another scene that I always quote a lot. We cut back to Dana's apartment building, where a demon dog finally hatches from a statue on top of the building. Lewis, once again, is shot down as Dana comes in and says that she can't come to his party because of her date. She gets a call from her mom, and in the other sheer horror moment of this film, she's dragged out of her apartment. Pretty scary scene for a PG movie, though you can definitely tell one of the makeup guys got quite the feel as he reached up and and out of that chair. Absolutely. Uh, I like this scene a lot, actually. I like the way the carpet's folded up. Uh, Ivan Reitman has said that the reason the door's lit like that is kind of an homage to uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is all pretty good stuff. What do you guys think about this scene of Dana getting, quote-unquote, possessed? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely creepy. And the way she talks to her mom on the phone is actually very relatable. Uh-huh. She's like, yeah, mom, okay. The, yes, the guy's on TV. And I'm like, yeah, I can understand from a personal, like, that's how I talk to my mom on the phone sometimes. But, yeah, it's definitely terrifying and um, obviously practical effects and everything else. And, like, it just works. Yeah, the red eyes, all that really works. I agree. It's also very well shot from a directing standpoint. How the the camera, they do like almost a 360 Mm -hmm. while she's on the phone and you slowly see the door open and there's like a green light. So I think Reitman does a good job of, you know, escalating tension. It's surprisingly effective for a movie that's generally very light. I think it's the one scene that could traumatize a young enough child. Yeah, this is the one you were talking about, huh? This I, scene right here? Def- positively. So while Lewis is trying unsuccessfully to entertain his guests, including Casey Kasem's very stacked blonde wife, he gets attacked by one of the dogs revealed just a few scenes ago. They're known as terror dogs if you go into the canon. For 1984, I think these effects hold up pretty well until we get these terror dogs. Now, their look is great. I have no qualms about the look. But when Lewis is getting chased through New York and some of this stop motion is pretty cringeworthy. But overall, I think the effects hold up pretty well. Matt, what do you think about the effects in this? I think stop motion in general is always tricky when you're implementing it alongside the real world, which is why I think the maybe the best uses are Dream Warriors, where it's just one miniature model for the Freddy Krueger puppet. And it's not really interacting with anything outside of just a wall. So you can impose it better. And then the opposite would be like Beetlejuice a couple years later, where the stop motion is in this cartoonish world when they step outside the door. So it's not going to look real whatsoever. So here, it's as good as you can expect at this time. Yeah, it looks a little wonky at points, like when it's running across the street, you know, it's dodging buses and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are really the only knocks, but considering the budget and look, this is also the first comedy to really utilize and incorporate special effects of this magnitude. Mm -hmm. I give them points for being the trendsetter as well. Logan? You kind of had your spiel about special effects earlier, but do you have anything to add to what you yeah, said? Yeah, I think when the dogs are stationary, and I think they actually have a moment in the apartment earlier before they're out on the streets where like they're like crashing through the walls. The stop motion here is definitely like you can kind of see the cracks in the foundation a little bit. Not that it's terrible, but like you can definitely see that it's like imposed on another background. You know, we talked about gremlins earlier where there's a scene of the gremlins like moving in stop motion like throughout the streets, but it's because it's all of them and like it's just they're isolated. It works. Again, for 1984, we're not expecting anything that's, you know, looking as if like it should be perfect in every facet of every scene that the special effects are used but yeah i mean here they're like they're not great but like it works and it's not like anything that's going to take you out of the movie completely 
Yeah, you mentioned that Gremlins scene. Of all the effects in Gremlins, that was the one scene in the movie I did have problems with. So, I don't know. It's just stop motion. I think that's the only thing that just doesn't really age very well when you look at these effects. But overall, I agree with you guys. I think the effects in this are excellent. And the fact that this is a comedy and they got Steve Johnson and a bunch of guys known for horror to do this is pretty remarkable. And I, and you know these guys were really like kids in a candy store, like working with these guys and working on these, this film. It really comes off on screen. So here's another logistical question I had, boys. So we've seen Dana's plot and she's now captured this dog is here to capture lewis why are these two chosen what is it about them that made them be chosen to be the key master and the gatekeeper wrong place wrong time is that what is that what we're looking at here like just because they were in these two apartments face to face with each other why are these two chosen plot convenience okay <laughs> thank you that's what i was looking for <laughs> not that, i mean so, not that it matter i mean obviously like i mean no you know i mean yeah i get it like they could have chosen any of the other accountants that lived in the building or that were lewis's friends and party buddies i mean i guess that's really it i mean it's just they choose these uh-huh. two because it's like well this is what, we're, what we'll do logan hit it on the head i think it's just coincidence so Lewis is getting chased through the streets, and in true New York fashion, nobody gives a shit, which I loved. He goes to a restaurant, and he seems to be hypnotized or something because he just slumps down, and that is it. Peter makes his way to the building. He walks up to Dana's place, and she just seems a little different. I love this scene because I don't remember Weaver playing anything like this before or since, actually. And she seems to be really digging it, how sexual she's being here. She reveals herself to be Zool, and when she's laying down and has her exorcist moment of floating over the covers, this would be right... You you would think this would be right up Peter's alley, but he seems shaken by this entire scene because he won't take advantage of her. I I found that actually kind of sweet. There's a nearly identical scene in um, Animal House with Tom Hulse. When girls oh, yeah. passed out, he's got the angel and the devil on his shoulder, and he doesn't take advantage of her. It just sends her home in a fucking shopping cart. <laughs> you need a scene to symbolize the fact that these guys are not sexual deviants. Because, yeah, this guy's a womanizer and clearly a chauvinist, but he's not going to take advantage of somebody who's not in their right mind. So I, I think this is a necessary scene. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously, you know, Dan is possessed. And it kind of agreeing with Matt, Peter has his moments as far as women are concerned you know, trying to flirt with the college girl that barely 18 in the beginning of the movie, but it kind of makes him a little bit more compassionate, which I think is important because he is the hero, you know, one of the heroes of the story, and it's good to see him kind of in a better light. And, uh, you know, the singing voice, like, who hasn't quoted that in some sort of context? Oh, yes. There is no, there is no Dana, only Zool. And the meme, the meme is everywhere. So, I mean, you always see it everywhere. Um, But no, I mean, it's, uh, Peter realizes something's, something's up. Meanwhile, Lewis is running around town talking to horses, trying to find the gatekeeper. (laughs) He's taken very quickly to the Ghostbusters. Lewis is shown to not be human on the screen that I mentioned earlier was like the Predator Vision screen. And he's sniffing popcorn, giving some crazy exposition about giant slores. I think this is where Moranis really excels in this role. He is fucking fantastic. And I love John Candy, too. I really did. Rest in peace. But I got to say, Moranis owns this fucking role. Would you like some coffee? Should I? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. (laughs) That's fantastic. Peter calls and says that he's hit Dana with 300 cc's of Thorazine, which I'm guessing would kill a normal human. And I like that he has that at his disposal, by the way. He just kind of has that. Like, he was expecting to have that. She's going to take a little nap now. Uh, Maybe not as sweet as you were thinking, Matt. 
We then cut to Ray and Winston, and I love this scene too because it's a pause in the story with Winston talking about Armageddon and what he believes. This is a great, great scene. Matt, this plays into what you were talking about earlier, how Winston is kind of the religious person of this film. This scene showcases that off, doesn't it? Yeah, and you got to establish some context for the Winston character if you're going to justify bringing him in halfway through the movie. Walter Peck, meanwhile, shows back up with his court order to shut off the containment system. This is when the story ramps up. I love that this asshole is responsible for unleashing these ghosts. And the scene's made even better by Lewis just moving his head with the motion and Egon just making the poof motion with his hands right before. <laughs> Some great improv here. This movie has hit the hour mark and we need a stakes and we get mm-hmm. them, right guys? Yep. I do have one question though, because, you know, you talk about coincidences. For the most part, all these ghosts are projections almost like they're projection effects like they're, they're holographic but what's up with the one taxi driver who oh, looks like, like a... one of the zombies from R- return of the living dead scared the fuck out of me as a kid god that fucking scared me i don't know man it's effective i gotta say that i never man that's actually funny because like i've seen that scene obviously countless times and i never picked up on it because most of the times these guys are are all mostly transparent and then you have that like one random like dude in the cab unless that guy's possessed i don't know and like i don't know i know the cartoon came years later but like it seemed to be that like ghosts would exist in every form shape and variety so i don't know if that like was them playing it like some sort of other worldly beings that weren't just transparent but this track and going back to the soundtrack garrett you know this one's like oh it kind of fits the spookiness of it all too can't think of the name of the song yeah exactly but, yeah Magic, oh, that was the one i was talking yeah. about earlier i'm guessing that this taxi driver was actually possessed it just seems like that would be what would happen here but you're right it does kind of come out of nowhere which is why i kind of like it and again this is something you would not expect to see in a comedy also watch lewis's face right after it's shut down he is fucking delighted when that fucking thing goes down and all the ghosts are coming out like he is so happy janine says that it's a sign of them going out of business and the ghostbusters are arrested with egon just getting pissed and yelling your mother at Peck. <laughs> so out of <laughs> so out of egon character but so great absolutely we get another montage of the ghost spirits moving around the city as you mentioned matt and the montage ends with dana's apartment building kind of blowing up i'm guessing at least as part of it it's turning into what it was meant to turn into matt i seem to remember when we recorded initially you had a problem with this scene i I think the problem is that gozer is so much of an afterthought there's all this build-up and all for just like a portal to hell basically i would have liked something a little bit more concrete or a little bit more um a little bit more imposing. The concrete gets destroyed, as we saw. Never mind. That's a really bad pun. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am sorry. Leave the dad jokes to me, Garrett. In the jail cell, Ray tells Peter he never studied and that Dana lives in the corner of Spook Central with Egon giving background on a secret society of Gozer worshippers. And then Winston says that he's got to get his own uh-huh. lawyer. And this is what I'm talking about with Winston. Like his humor, it's not as outlandish. It's not as in your face, but his, the dryness of it is what really sells me on it. I laugh pretty hard when I watch that for this time for this review. Meanwhile, Lewis meets up with Dana as the key master and gatekeeper. And is it weird that it wasn't until this viewing that I got the sexual entendre between key master and gatekeeper? And I've seen this movie probably going on. You didn't get it until your time. most recent never... viewing. Yeah, until the, I watched it. You didn't ask your days. mom about Actually, it. No, we were way back. What? I didn't even think about it then. A week ago, when I saw this, I, I finally like a light bulb literally flashed over my head. Like, holy shit! I never got that until now. Yeah. It's just so funny because Weaver, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's around 
I don't know, 5'9", maybe 5'10". And when she's making out with Moranis, Moranis yeah, is a, she is a small over guy. So, and, oh, yeah. my God. This like, is really funny. It's obviously funny, supposed to be, like, an important, like, thing happening between them. But, like, it's uh-huh. so funny because, like, they're so disproportionate to each other. I know. <laughs> it's so great. Maybe that's um, why the reason they had them be possessed. Because, like, oh, they're going to fuck later. And, then like, this is what they're going to look like. It's so. It's just so weird. <laughs> The Ghostbusters, meanwhile, are going to trial amongst a media frenzy. Peck gives his side of the story, saying that they perpetrate light shows to make it look like they're capturing ghosts. And it is here where we get perhaps the second most famous line of this movie. Right after he slimed me, when I was a kid, much to my parents' chagrin, I always quoted, it's true, this man has no dick. You know what I love most about this, now watching it again this time? Again, this, this goes to Ernie Hudson. His rolling of his eyes right after this, it really made me laugh this viewing. Like, it was fucking fantastic. I don't know if it's this scene or in the present, uh, but he's like, I, you know, Ernie Hudson's like, I've seen shit that'll turn you white. Yeah, it's this yeah. scene here. Yeah. Like, that's such a great line. <laughs> Matt, what are you feeling about this trial? Oh, this is where the movie, like, really, as far as funny as seen, because it's that, it's the dogs and cats living together. Uh-huh. It's like where all the icon- almost all the big iconic lines that I have recollections of come from this scene. Vakeman appeals to a politician the only way you can, which is to say they're going to be saving the lives of millions of registered <laughs> voters. Boy, oh boy, this could be made today, this fucking scene here. It works, which means the Ghostbusters can now go to work saving the city. They make their way through the crowds to the song Saving the Day, another song I used to play a lot as a kid, right to the apartment building, and outside they're almost sucked underground, which was a really weird scene, actually. This was this was kind of odd, seeing them just go around here and having this ground almost suck yeah, them in. Not, but it sets them yeah, up, right? not shot in New York. This was a soundstage. Yeah, not shot in New York, but I gotta say, you know, an interesting background on the scene. So... They didn't have the rights, and we're going to get into this more next week. They didn't have the rights to the Ghostbusters name. It was already taken, and they were still going to call it Ghost Smashers up until they filmed this scene. And Reitman called the producers and said, you know what? I just had a scene where I have thousands of people chanting Ghostbusters. You need to buy that name. So (laughs) the week later, they bought the name Ghostbusters. (laughs) They make their way in, and as much as I've been working out lately, I don't think I could go up all these stairs with these proton packs on my back. Peter even says, let me know when we get to 20, I'm going to throw up. They get to 22, and and a flight of stairs, which go up, as Venkman calls out. But, you know, I'm looking at this building, and Reitman shoots this, and and I know these are storyboards too, from afar. This looks way higher than 22 floors, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Peter tells them to go ahead, and when they get there, they're in time to see Dana and Lewis turn into the terror dogs. I can imagine this scene of them transforming had to be kind of silly to shoot because the way they're shaking. I mean, Sigourney Weaver's really getting into it if you watch it. Like, she is shaking her body like crazy. But I think the end result is actually pretty good, capped off by Peter saying, okay, so she's a dog. (laughs) What do you guys think about this transformation scene? I mean, it works for the... It's pretty quick. So, I mean, it's not like they sequenced it like where they transform like and then they have prosthetics or anything it's just a very quick thing so i mean i think it's fine for what it is yeah it works i wasn't expecting you know david cronenberg's to fly yeah so i think i think it's good so they meet up with gozer a role that was originally written for do you guys remember this from last uh, time that's a fresh memory was it david bowie <laughs> very close peewee herman ah, okay <laughs> This was written for Pee Wee Herman. Could you imagine him? (laughs) Could you imagine him in this role, let alone this outfit? (laughs) Bowie would have been a better choice, and then he could be like, "You have the power of the babe." There you go. Go back to our '80s uh, fantasy. Bowie owned that jumpsuit too. 
Yeah. Well, awesome. <laughs> to be fair, Pee Wee Herman was going to be more of like a negotiator. Like he was going to come out in a just a, like a four piece suit. It wasn't going to be this outlandish. But after Pee Wee said no, they went after David Bowie. They went after Matt. You'll appreciate this. They went after Grace Jones. Go back to our. Yeah, that I could definitely, I could definitely see that. But they got a Yugoslavian model to play this character, who's described as a cross between. In the script, she's described as a cross between David Bowie and Grace Jones. And if what I read about this role is true, and I read this in a making of book that I bought last year when we were gonna when we did this retro last year, I don't blame Rubens for turning the part down because this girl had to wear this hot ass costume that had to be sewn in the back. Every time she wore it, the stage where they shot these scenes was extremely hot, and she could only wear the red eye contact lenses 20 minutes at a time. It's a trying part, but I really like this girl in it. I can't imagine what Rubens would have done with this, but I'm happy with what we got. I mean, it's crazy to think of what the names you brought up, because I feel like, again, kind of going back, having those one of those people, either Bowie or Rubens in that role, would have been kind of taking away from it because it's like it's such a face. But it's also such a small role that like you don't really need a big name person to do it. And I think the person who did this was fine. It, it's such a small villain role that like you don't really need to have a name go with that. I think it would have been too distracting to have Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens. So mm-hmm. I think the anonymity actually kind of helps the androgynous look of Gozer, which is totally why I see Grace Jones. Yes. You know, in this role or, you know, I could have seen like Tina Turner doing this maybe around this time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm satisfied with, with what they did. So Gozer shows up and the guys are shocked that Gozer is a girl after Ray says that he is not a god. She attacks them and Winston again. Great line when he says, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. This was a line my dad, he was laughing so hard. He's probably still laughing in the grave at this scene. Like, this is this is just a fucking hilarious line. They shoot at her, and she just does a double flip and then disappears. She then says that they need to pick a destructor. So everyone clears their heads. Everyone except Ray, who picks the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Now, this could have gone extremely bad, guys. It should have gone extremely bad. You are at the end of your horror comedy. You need a final boss, as they say. I think if I were Reitman and I saw that the final baddie was this marshmallow man, I would have requested a rewrite. Maybe keep fighting Gozer until they kill her. I don't know. On paper, this had to have looked very silly. But you know what? God damn it. It is silly and it fucking works. This is a a toy that I had as a kid. Very recognizable. You know, it's funny because like, it obviously is a villain, but, like, when he first steps on the scene, it's like, oh, he's adorable. But, like, then he steps on a church, and yeah. then Bankman's like, nobody steps on a church in my town. And even right as they're blasting him away is, like, you could tell he has, like, trepidation about doing it because he, he doesn't want to do it because he loves this, I guess, mascot. Mm-hmm. And I'll get back to it. Again, special effects in the sequence are phenomenal. Yeah. I love the State Park Marshmallow Man because he's so syn- uh, synonymous with Ghostbusters and... It's just, like, his visual is so simple, but, like, it just works. And he's just smiling, and it's, like, he doesn't mean any harm, and he's just this, like, happy-go-lucky dude. And it's just, it's so funny because, like, they literally have to blast him away. And it's just, it's so ironic that they have to do this. But it's also Ray, because Ray's just, like, thinking about all this crazy shit all this time, and it just seems like it would be something that he just, like, it pops into his brain. You know, you mentioned that. I had never noticed that before, but now that I think about it, you're right. When they show Ray, he's got a look on yeah. his face like he One, doesn't want to do it. One, two, three, and he's, like, he's literally, like, he's, he's hesitating. Great call. I never caught that before. I never noticed that either. That's to me, Paul. This is quite the way to end a movie. 
you know, with a demonic 100-foot marshmallow man. Surprisingly works. This could have been, I try shot if Shyamalan did this, it'd be an absolute disaster. Oh, look how you guys have brought in Shyamalan and Nolan into this podcast. Like, you guys need to just do something else. <laughs> I mean, I know these are done, but... Yeah. Well, eventually, all of our shows are going to blend together, yeah, and right. it, it's yes. going to be like most it's epic It's the bitch after Chase universe. Leading up to the premiere of this, even Reitman was still scared. Like, he didn't think this would work. And they didn't have any money to go reshoot the ending. So this would either work or it wouldn't. you got to think, again, think about this, guys. How would you have this thing end? And how would you have this end with a marshmallow man? What was going through their mind when this was coming up? And God damn, it fucking works. I remember being in the theater and just... Being in awe, seeing mm. this thing King Kong like yeah. going through this fucking street, it's remarkable the way. I this mean, works. this character and Slimer, just like out of everything else in this movie, and obviously the cartoon comes later. This seems the most marketable to kids, and then it's just crazy because like we've touched upon a lot of '80s film with our fantasy, and then you guys did Gremlins, and you know, but like it's just crazy that like the '80s were such a decade of like we're just gonna try this, and if it works, it works, and it doesn't, it doesn't, and this seems like the quintessential like it shouldn't work. But it does. It also gives Murray another great line where he says, since this marshmallow man is from out of town, all we have to do is get him laid and we won't have any problems. <laughs> Fucking fantastic. As Logan mentioned, he steps on a church, which pisses Venkman off, and they attack him. Egon says the only way to destroy this marshmallow man is to do what he warned them about earlier in the movie, which is aim their packs to the doors and cross the streams. And I like the look on Venkman's face as they do this, almost like it's a goodbye if this goes wrong, you know, that that's kind of a sweet mm. little moment. But it goes right, and the look on the marshmallow man's face is great, too. It's almost sad that I look at it, though, because he's got this look like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't, please don't. <laughs> Boys, how do you think about the way the marshmallow man and Gozer is eventually vanquished? I mean, the basic of the two become one. They have to kind of blow away Gozer to get rid of yeah. the of marshmallow man, which it kind of takes the element of, like, like hardship for defeating the final boss. Because now they're like two characters that they are defeating. Killing two birds with one stone, I guess, is the better phrase for it. But like, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is more of a the villain than any, like, than Gozer at this point. Because at least they have like a presence. But no, I mean, it's really not about the villain at the end of the movie. And that's something we're going to kind of see later on, too. But they cross the streams, they do what they're not supposed to, and they ended up winning the day. It's yeah. amazing it works considering <laughs> when you explain it. It's, what is the big climax of your movie about people fighting ghosts? They stand in a line and point sticks at a portal. That sounds like the most banal, unsatisfying ending, but somehow they pull it off. And my God, is that a lot of marshmallow Mm. goo. I always thought it was funny that Peck gets leveled with a bunch of it, almost like it looks like something else. And he just screams that he loves it. Not the response I'd have. That'd be almost an hour-long shower if this happened to me. But uh, it's just, it's funny. No, it only takes me five minutes on a Friday night. Wow. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. Oh, uh, Ghostbusters all wake up. Keep that right in there. <laughs> you got it, sir. I just marked it as a blooper, but I'm going to cross Thank it you. off now. He lost. Uh, now Chris uh, is good. Like, actually, it's more like 20 because he's very slow. <laughs> <laughs> the Ghostbusters all wake up covered with marshmallow, all except Murray, who was probably like, you already slung me, guys. Yeah. You're not going to get that fucking marshmallow shit on me. Although, to be fair, he did have the romantic moment leading into the credits, so that's probably why they didn't give it to him. But I just like to think that, yeah, you're not going to put that shit on me. Dana and Lewis, they proved to be okay, with Lewis asking who the guys covered in marshmallows are. 
Who are you guys? We're the Ghostbusters. Who does his taxes? <laughs> yeah, because he's an accountant. We see Winston say, I love this town. We have a, I guess, parade as the final credits start rolling, only to get a stinger. A stinger in 1984, believe it or not, as Slimer attacks the screen. And credits finally roll on Ghostbusters. Boys, what do you feel about these final frames of the celebration? And, every, and we're hearing the theme song again. This is all pretty feel-good stuff, yeah. right? It, it reminds me a lot of the ending of The Karate Kid. Oh, good call. Yeah. It's like perfect because like they're going out in style. They succeeded. It's a very, you know, it's a very happy ending for this movie and our heroes. All right. So scale of one to ten, what do we give Ghostbusters? God, I want to save Matt for last because I'm most curious about his. Logan, sir, where do you, where do you stand? Um, I mean, in talking about this movie with you guys, obviously there's been things that have been pointed out the matter of convenience for storytelling and some of the special effects, but I would be incorrect in saying that, you know, I don't love this movie because I do. I watch it once a year, at least on Halloween, going in my Halloween rotation. It's a movie I grew up watching. It's quotable. I, I do enjoy the score. I mean, that theme song is iconic. You know, it's such an earworm that I can listen to it all the time. Um, the acting is great. You know, I love, I love the cast. Bill Murray, the uh, underrated Ernie Hudson, uh, Harold Ramis, like great Harold Ramis, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Reaver. I mean, what a, it, it's such a cast. It's such a cast in this movie of, of actors. The State Park of Marshallland has become an iconic piece of pop culture, Slimer, especially with the ecto-cooler. That's, you know, more in line with the cartoon. But I can't say that, like, I don't love this movie because I do. And I, I love revisiting it and just kind of stepping back into my, my childhood while watching it, but also at the same time appreciating it as an adult and obviously learning new things as, you know, we have talked about that you would totally fly over your head as a kid. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a strong rating and I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a solid nine out of ten for this one. I love Ghostbusters. It's it's a big part of my movie watching and uh I just adore it. Wow. Nine out of ten from Logan, that's pretty high. Matt, sir, I'm guessing you're not gonna go as high. Gee, what gave you that assumption? <laughs> to be honest, my score I went up a point higher than I did last year when we reviewed it. I don't know if I just I had a better viewing experience, but even though it's not something I watch with regularity, I have to give it a lot of points because it's one of the only movies I can think of where they took a script that was bombastic and a premise that was beyond absurd, had to fine-tune it, meet budgetary restraints, make something very different than what was originally intended, and it still works, I'd say 95%. I think there's maybe a couple parts that fall flat. I think the, everything with Gozer... It's, it's like an afterthought. Even though it's cool that they win the day, I still don't feel like the Ghostbusters really were at a disadvantage whatsoever during this entire movie. You know, one of the things I like about 80s comedies in particular is the feeling of defeat that can cross your mind. You know, I think of the late 70s, but, you know, Animal House, they get kicked off campus. And I can think of a couple of other examples that are escaping me right now because it's very late. But all things being as they are, I like this movie a lot. Garrett, you compare it to Gremlins a lot because they came out the same year. I think I do like this movie more than Gremlins, and I gave that a 7, so I'll go ahead and give it an 8. I think it's really good. I don't think it's one of the greatest comedies of all time, but that's just my comedic objectivity. Wow, an 8 and a 9. Well, coming back to this movie, I was scared to come back to this movie, honestly, because I remembered it so fondly as a child, and I've watched it 
periodically. I don't watch it like Logan. I don't watch it yearly. I watch it periodically. I'll watch it well, once every three to five years or so. But just the times I used to watch it as a kid and all the quotes I used to do of it as a kid, like just those alone probably add up to 20 times. So that's why I made the assumption that I've seen it 30. But in watching it this time, I, even, I mentioned earlier, even though I've seen it this many times, I always see stuff that I hadn't seen or noticed before. But the other thing you got to notice about this movie too is you got to look at it in the context of when it was made and just like I've mentioned this entire podcast the naturalistic quality of this the way they flow the way their dialogue just comes out of their mouths because they were told to improv the majority of the time we're going to see that suffer as the series goes on but it just it works in this this isn't a greatly drawn out story but what it is is it's just a fun romp and I am pleased to say that I actually like this as much if not more as an adult than I did as a kid god damn who out in the fucking bench universe or any universe has not seen this fucking movie I'm not gonna say I recommend you see this movie because who the fuck hasn't seen it but what I will say is each and every time I watch this, I just grow more and more fond of it, and I notice more and more things. I don't have that same opinion about the others, but we'll get to that at another time. So having said all that, I want to go ahead and I want to match Logan. I want to go 9. I can't go 10 because 10 means it's perfect, and there are definitely things in this that aren't perfect. I mentioned some of the effects, which probably makes me an effects snob, but... Just the way these guys and girls bounce off each other, this naturalistic feeling of this movie, everything that happens before the storm, shall we say, it's fucking great. So, yeah, 9 out of 10 for me on the first Ghostbusters. But how high will we rank the sequel, which came out five years later? Logan, sir, what do you remember about Ghostbusters 2? So this one, five years later, I was able to go see it in the theaters. I was obviously still a pretty big Ghostbusters fan because the cartoon was still going on and, you know, all that stuff was, you know, still a big part of my growing up. And, uh, you know, obviously I loved the first movie as a kid and so I was so excited to see a second one. Obviously, you know, when you're an adult and there's a big range between movies, you realize it more than when you're a kid. So five years didn't feel like five years at the time. But I was, you know, I was pretty excited for it. I got the uh, soundtrack on um, tape to date myself, you know, not way before, but before the movie came out, so I listened to that on repeat. So I was pretty excited for it, being a big Ghostbusters fan back then. Matt, sir, you obviously didn't see this in theaters. <laughs> what, are, what are you expecting when we review Ghostbusters 2? This will be only the second time I've seen it. The first one was last year when um, doing this, oh. so I have no preconceived notions. And the reason I didn't see it is because everyone told me it was the same exact movie, so why, why would I bother? But yeah, th- this will be my second viewing. And, you know, I did like Gremlins 2 more than the first one, so maybe I'll like this sequel more than the original. Yes. Well, I'll get into the story next week, but this was one, as much as I love Ghostbusters, I did not see Ghostbusters 2 in theaters, but I'll get into that story next week. Boys, it's been fun revisiting this film again with you guys. Uh, hopefully, save the file, save the, the test file. And- <laughs> it will be exported, kind sir. But I've had a blast going through this, and we have three more movies to go. We'll get into our feelings on what to expect in the next film, in the next couple podcasts. But till then, we came, we saw, we kicked this podcast ass. Thank you, gentlemen. My baby told me once. My baby told me twice. My baby told me three times. Do you want some uh, coffee, Mr. Tully? Do I? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. The Ben
Cringe Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! Voice narration done by Adam. Hey, what? You boneheads are going to come and rouse me out again? And you get a car! And you get a car! <laughs> Edited by Garrett. What an asshole. Shubs and Zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the floor that day, I can tell you. Two in the box! Ready to go! We be fast and they be slow! There were ghosts around this time, you know, it was stuff like, oh, God, what was that fucking movie with, um, oh, shit, I'm drawing a blank. But it, the ghosts were very malicious. We got one! Pretty good pre-title sequence, I think. What do you guys think of this opening scene? Yeah, you want to go first? Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> I think it's... It, we got one! It's the theme, everybody knows it. What, what the fuck do you want me to add? Well, good, you know man. what I love about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I love about it too. I find Miss. Uh, I'll give my testimony. It's good. I like that statement. Okay. On the record, please. Wow, did it hurt to go that far? Uh, <laughs> you know what yeah, I love about I just, it is. I felt a pinch, I felt a pinch, in, pinch in my armpit just when that. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I don't get sleep anymore because I have a seven-month-old, so you're going to get a little bit of the Brash Logan coming out these days now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Can't wait. We got one! I'm going to just say it right now. Rick Moranis, anything he touches turns to gold. And the fact that, I mean, obviously, I think this was pre-recording, or we did a recording, you know. When did, was it spring 2020? I don't even remember when we recorded. And then I think it was summer. Okay. In the meantime, between that recording and this one, some asshole beat up Rick Moranis in New York City, and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this world that somebody beats up Rick Moranis? Listen, <laughs> that aside, I don't know who that person is, but they, I think they were arrested, which, thank God. We got one! I, I think it's the whole building, but she's the first one to see the actual paranormal activity going on. So, uh, did you say you like the scene, Matt? Or yeah, do I have to say I like every scene? Like, what? What's the point of having me on the show? I'm just going to do guys for an No, you don't have to say you do. I was just asking. We just wanted to make sure that you like the theme song. That's fine, and then we can move on. 
No, I was I, I wasn't sure if you got your point out before you asked a question. Is why I asked. No, I I don't have a point to add. Like, okay, if there's stuff you know this better than anybody. We've been doing this for six fucking years. When I don't like something, I let you know. God, I got two grumpy assholes on this podcast right now. So we got one. This is when Dana walks in, and you have to think that the scene of Peter. Oh, never mind. I already mentioned that. So cross that off. Uh, so this is when Dana walks in. We got one! Dana, once again, is shot down as... Oh, wait a second. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wrote that down wrong. Uh, Lewis, once again, is shot down as... We got one! I would have liked something a little bit more concrete or a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more imposing. The concrete gets destroyed, as we saw. Never mind. That's a really bad pun. <laughs> I'm sorry. Still, I am so sorry. dad jokes to me, God, Garrett. God, God <laughs> hated that joke so much that WrestleMania is now postponed because of thunder. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, apparently oh, there was a severe crazy. thunderstorm that came through. I don't know if it was the afternoon or the evening, but hopefully everything's still happening. Oh, God, I have friends there. I hope they're okay. I'm not time-stamping the pocket, the timing of this podcast at all. I know. I know this won't. This will be a blooper, and people are like, "What? WrestleMania happened in June." Uh, <laughs> we got one. Yeah, until the, I watched it. You didn't ask your days. mom about Actually, it. No, we were, we're like, "What?" I didn't even think about it then. You know, I didn't know what Gatekeeper and Keymaster went. But now, like, I watched it. Let's see, we were supposed to record this a week ago when I fell asleep. Yeah, the week ago when I watched this. Yeah, the week ago when I saw this, I. I we got. She then says that they need to pick a restrictor. Everyone then clears the, their heads. I'm sorry. They need to pick a destructor. Yeah, let me say that again. She then says they need to pick a destructor. We got one! You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting. <laughs>